Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I'm excited to talk about this one today. Me too. It feels like such a different vibe from the rest of the books that we've read for the podcast so far. Oh, totally different. And I don't know. I had a ton of fun reading it. I am excited to talk about it today. I feel like I don't have as much to say about it, but I think this will be a fun trip down memory lane and I'm sure we'll we'll wander into places I don't expect in this conversation. (laughs) We always get there. Yeah. Um, Okay. So Sarah, let's give a little summary of From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. All right. So this book was published in 1967, and it is about two kids, Claudia and James Kincaid. Claudia is 12, James is nine, and they decide, well, Claudia decides they are going to run away. She takes James with her because of reasons we'll get into. <laughs> and they decide to run away from their uh, from their Connecticut suburb into New York City and to stay at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. While they are there, they learn about a new statue that the museum has um, added to its collection that may be a Michelangelo. And they take it upon themselves to figure out if it is authentic. That leads them to the home and files of our title character, Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, and basically into the discovery of a lifetime. We will spoil this book towards the end of our conversation. We'll give you some warnings. It's so short. (laughs) But it's so short. Yeah, we couldn't we couldn't talk about this book (laughs) without talking about the end. And um, I mean, I think it's probably no surprise as an adult reader uh, what what is to come. Um, but yeah, Chelsea, what is your what was your past experience with this book, and what do you think of it this time around? I know that I read this as a kid. I don't remember if I read it just for me for fun or if I read it as part of like a group class thing, like whether it was for reading circles or like a full class read. I don't recall. But going into it, I remembered that the kids ran away from home and that they stayed in the museum and that I thought that was super cool and desperately wanted to do that myself because I loved museums even when I was a kid. I remember them swimming in the fountain for money. (laughs) But I didn't – there was a lot that I didn't remember. I did not remember – that Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler was the narrator. Yep. Didn't remember that at all. I didn't remember that they end up bopping around to different places around New York. Like they're not in the museum the entire time. Mm -hmm. Lots of laundromat scenes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the automat for lunch, which is very dated and fun. Um, And then I didn't remember a whole lot about the end either. So... Yeah, I think it's it's funny what sticks in your mind because when you're reading this as a kid, I think it is just like they're in the museum together. 
Yeah, you you encapsulated my experience very well. I I remember this being a favorite. I remember the cover with the kids and their instrument cases, how they filled their instrument cases with their extra clothes um, when they ran away to the museum. Very vivid memories of the the fountain. And mm-hmm. I I think I I think about that every time I see a fountain with coins yeah. in it. <laughs> I remember them hiding in the bathroom, pulling their feet up on the toilet so that the guards wouldn't see them. Yeah, all of that. And then I did remember that there was the the mystery with the the statue and that they got to the bottom of the mystery um, by visiting these very mixed up files. I did not remember that like final like light bulb clue, the baloney thing until I started reading and Jamie said baloney for the first time. And then that really like leapt out at me. Um, And that happened quite a bit. There were lots of little things, little images that once I read them again, I felt so much nostalgia and fondness for them. Like them eating cheese sandwiches and drinking coffee for some reason that really stood out to me. Or seeing, oh, Claudia talking about taking tests and being able to see the answer in the tech, exactly Mm -hmm. where the answer was in the textbook, but not remembering it. I very vividly remember reading that and feeling such a connection. Um, Yeah, all of those little things just really, yeah, created so much nostalgia for me. But it was the images and that those kind of visceral experiences that brought me back to reading it for the first time. Like you, I did not remember that Mrs. Basily Frank (laughs) Wilder. We're gonna have to come up with a nickname for her. Um, Was the narrator? I did not remember the twist at the end. At all, yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was a, it was really a delightful mix of surprises and feeling very much like a comfort read. Yeah, I agree. And I have to say, a lot of the other books that we've read, reading them as an adult now, they felt even more emotionally resonant for me. This one didn't, and that's not a bad thing. But the sort of like emotional coming of age, um, like inner journey of this book, I was just like, eh, it was fine. It didn't connect with me. I didn't feel it the way that I have with our other books that we've read, but it was still really enjoyable. And I think something that makes all of these sort of images so visceral, it's very solid, simple, straightforward writing. Mm -hmm. But E.L. Konigsberg really does pick out like the simplest, most vivid things to write about that you very much would encounter in a museum or at school or like on the sidewalk. Like there are a lot of little moments that make you go, oh yeah, that really describes life super well. Yeah. She's a great Um, noticer and that really works in her, her writing. I, I feel the same way about the emotional connection, although I very I think I very much feel like a Claudia. Like those opening paragraphs where she like she wants to run away, but she does not like to be uncomfortable. <laughs> like this this really resonates with me. I am somebody who loves the idea of picnics. And then I go and I'm like, there's not a bathroom close by. It's either too hot <laughs> or too cold. Like I really was like, I think I am a Claudia. 
Um, I thought it was hilarious. And I I do not think I picked up on this stuff as a kid about, um, I, I think I really felt her sense of injustice, even though I was an mm-hmm. only child, not an oldest daughter. Um, but then you read it and you, you read as an adult that her like sense of injustice is like, we didn't have a live-in housekeeper. Our cleaning lady only came twice a week. <laughs> and you're like, man, I want a cleaning lady yeah. twice a week. <laughs> so I, I think that's really fun and funny as an adult reader. And I, yeah. I wonder, because I, I can't remember either if I read this book like with my mom or a teacher or just read it by myself. But I think so much goes over the head of kids. But this is one of those books that I feel like the author is like planting different layers and levels for if you're reading it aloud as an adult to your child um, or just the kid can just enjoy it as well. Yeah. I remember part of why I liked this book is I am an oldest daughter. And so a lot of that stuff, I was like, yes, the oldest daughters do bear the burden of the family, Claudia. (laughs) I get it. Um, But also I have a younger brother. Um, It's just the two of us. And when we were kids, we spent a lot of time together and like we were buddies and played together. And so her running away with her brother was very like, well, if I was going to run away with someone, like I would bring my brother with me. And um, just kind of reading their dynamic, I think, as a kid and then, you know, reading it now felt very um, true to my experience, even though she does have a few other younger brothers. She just doesn't pick them. She picks uh, Jamie because he's really good with money, yep, which I exactly. thought was hilarious. Um, the he's, way that he like stops her, he's like, no, no, we cannot eat that for dinner, Claudia. <laughs> we need to save some money. And she desperately wants to take a taxi everywhere they go. I know. <laughs> um, and he doesn't let her. And then you're also like, your little young legs can make it. You don't need the taxi. <laughs> I love it. And I love that Jamie likes a little sense of discomfort and Claudia is the opposite. Mm-hmm. Like those little details are just really bring these yeah. characters to life in such a short amount of time. And I really loved the moment where, because as we mentioned, uh, Mrs. Frankweiler is the narrator. And so you get some of these little asides on her part and there's one really nice one where like Claudia and Jamie just kind of bond for the first time or and Mrs. Frankweller reflects on it and says like they don't know it but really what happened is in this moment they became a team. And it's just mm-hmm. such a nice moment. Um and I liked the addition of that narration because it really highlights some of those um special moments even though again they're they weren't like um, super emotionally resonant for me either, but they the writing was nice and I liked that added element. Yeah. And they're just, there wasn't as much happening as I remember when I was reading it as a kid. Yeah. Like, I remember this being a really exciting book that I couldn't wait to finish. But then when I was reading it as an adult, like granted, it didn't take me very long to finish. It's very short such a page turner. It's just like a very friendly, warm book to read um, in an afternoon. But I was like, oh, not a lot happens. But not a lot does have to happen when you're a kid for something to be exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and again, the images, the details are so resonant that that is like part of, I think, what keep, keeps you reading. And I 
as an adult reader, appreciate that this mystery is compact. Like it is, it is Mm -hmm. a mystery, but there's not a ton of red herrings. There's not all of these like extra puzzles or excursions. There's like the one mystery they, they, they go about solving it in a variety of ways until they get to the, uh, the source. But I, I appreciated that. I didn't necessarily want it to be more episodic or have that, the overall question drawn out much more. Yeah. Did you have the, um, uh, extra afterward from the author in your audiobook? No. Okay. Um, it's super fun. Um, so for the 35th anniversary edition, um, she wrote an afterword. And so this, it was in my copy. And then, um, there's also a material from the 1968 Newberry Caldecott Awards dinner. Um, and it's just fun to read how she talks about this because this is one of those books that the author wrote it. And then for years and years and years of her life, people talked to her about it and appreciated it and remembered reading it as kids. And so it really stuck with her as well. Um, so in 1995, so this would have been, you know, almost 30 years after the book came out, a teacher at NYU and an authority on 16th century Italian sculpture, um, there was a party going on and in the lobby across the street from the Met, there was a statue of a Cupid. Um, and she announced to the world, I think this is a Michelangelo. And so everybody, um, it was a front page story in the New York Times and everybody sent Yale Konigsberg letters to say, like, did you know about this statue when you wrote the book? And she said, no, I made up the story based on a different statue um, that appeared in the New York Times in 1965. And that talked about a plaster and stucco statue that she turned into Angel. So I don't know. I think it's really interesting that this book is like sandwiched between these two real life instances of these statues that people were guessing about. Um, and she just goes on to talk about how, um, like this is a fun discovery for readers. Um, and that, that she changed just like the book changed. It's really, it's really lovely, but I like that the mystery is kind of inspired by something she read in the newspaper. Feels very like, feels very New York. (laughs) And I love that it came up years later and people were like, hey, did you know about this? It feels like it. everything about this book, aside from like, oh my gosh, I don't want my kids to like stay in the Met, right, by themselves. But everything feels, aside from that, like, oh, it could happen. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And and I, I think there's so much in this book that, you know, I, I personally rereading it realized that like going through my life, I've like noticed various things because of this book. Um, and the, the art and like thinking about those kinds of forgery stories or, uh, is, is one of them. And I, I, yeah, I just really, I mean, one of my questions while reading it was why is this book so appealing to kids? Because like you're saying, like she's been flooded with letters. Um, it stands out for many people as something they remember reading. And it's just so 
odd and different from the other classics we've read for the podcast and from a lot of more contemporary middle grade I've I've read. I was thinking this would maybe be more of a culminating question, but maybe we could just move here now and then get into some more details as as we want. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so the reason I think this came up to me is there are some obvious things that are appealing to me, like the idea of running away, I think is like yeah, a fantasy and <laughs> scheme. And it's like some of the other books like Boxcar Children yeah. and just kind the of playing it feels like a trope sort of yeah. thing where you're a kid but you're you're put in this like adult you get to plan your time and mm-hmm. and the details of that I think are really appealing to a certain type of kid like I want to know the specifics of how they're <laughs> planning this of ex- what they eat every day etc but there are so many details like they talk about how much things cost constantly yeah. which was hilarious to me obviously like the like value of money has changed so much that as a kid, certainly I had no concept of what the like relative value of their of course, money would yeah. be. Um, and and even though the mystery is like intriguing, the details of the the art world that they that that they have to kind of explore aren't don't seem obviously interesting to to kids. So yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I was just thinking, I think they start with like 24 bucks or something like that. Yeah. And Claudia's like, yeah, we can make this last a while. I'm like, oh my gosh, that would last like three hours. Also, I don't, I don't think the Met is free anymore even. I think it, it isn't. It is like 20 bucks. So yeah. <laughs> the money thing I think was really interesting. Let's, okay. So let's talk a little bit about that first. I think like the money and Claudia having them stick to a routine and like stay washed up and all of that speaks to something either about being a certain kind of kid or um, about that sort of playing house thing where Claudia runs away because she does want that autonomy. She wants to be her own boss. She doesn't want her parents telling her which chores she has to do. She's still doing chores right? Like they're still doing laundry. They're still cleaning up after themselves. She's still acting like a big sister, but just because it's on her terms, she likes it. But also I feel like it's this thing where, and you only appreciate this once you're a certain age, as a kid, you want to be a grown up because you think grown ups can do whatever they want. And then you become a grown up, and you're like, I wish I was a kid because I can do whatever I want. I can't do whatever I want yes, anymore. That is so <laughs> well said. And they kind of learn this lesson because mm-hmm. the money runs out and they know at a certain point, like the end of the road is there and they can't do everything that they want to anymore. And um, so I, I think that in that way, the the money stands out to me a little bit. But as far as the art it it had to be something. And of course, because they're in the museum, it's going to be art, right? It just yeah. feels like if they ran away to somewhere else, there just would have been a substitute mystery. Yeah, I think I think that's that's right. And I think Konigsberg does a good job of the way she writes about the art where you feel like you're getting these important details, but she doesn't overwhelm 
you with mm-hmm. history and and background. Um, I love that the kids think that they can pick out whether it's a forgery or not after learning like two details about Michelangelo. Yeah. And that felt very real to me, like that they weren't, you know, going to the library a million times. I love that they did go to the library, but yeah, <laughs> um, they weren't going to the library over and over to like, you know, read these tomes on like that just felt so true to life and was a great way to bring this art and this mystery in without overwhelming the reader. Um, and I, I think that also like, you know, the Claudia's interest in angel and just this, this seeing something and feeling this connection to it, I think rings true as well, whether it's, whether it's for a kid, a piece of art or a book or something where you just, you encounter it and you're like, oh, this is for me. This is, Mm -hmm. this was made for me. And I think that feeling is really, um, really well captured. And that kind of becomes one of the central themes of the book is, is realizing that that's what Claudia needed all along, something private, Mm -hmm. something that was just hers um, that, you know, a story, a secret that nobody could take away. And that feels very like right for being 12. Like, you know, you're really kind of on the verge of becoming a teenager and having more responsibility and not being able to maybe do some of these like silly adventures and, and make believe. I love how they call each other like Lady Claudia and all of that. And, and so, it's just something for her to hold on to is was really special. Well, that's really lovely and well put. I think that 12 is when a lot of kids start keeping like a journal or something. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, that private life just starts to feel a little, little different at home. Um, I think the other thing with the art is just that Claudia and Jamie are smart kids. Yeah. Like they're book smart. And I think that E.L. Konigsberg just kind of wanted to show like this is a couple of kids. They want to keep learning. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's there's a really lovely sort of theme of art appreciation. And like they don't have to be experts in order to appreciate Angel. They can just go pick up a Michelangelo book and learn two things and think they know everything about this statue. And um, Mrs. B, I guess we can call her. She takes them seriously. Um, when they talk about the art and stuff, she, and she entrusts this secret and she, she trusts them with Angel in a way that she could have done with a bunch of scholars, but would those scholars appreciate the statue just for what it is or only because it's maybe a Michelangelo? Um, I think there's something to the art appreciation element here as well. Oh, I really like that. What else do we want to talk about with this book? We didn't really dig into Jamie and Claudia. We did a little bit with Claudia as characters. Did you have any feelings about Jamie? Did you enjoy him as a character? A little bit. He kind of reminded me of, um, we talked a little bit about A Wrinkle in Time. Charles and how the kid, <laughs> Yes, and how the kids didn't necessarily sound like kids all mm-hmm. the time. 
I, I don't think Jamie fully fell into the Charles Wallace category, but there were a few things where I was like, eh, whatever. Um, it, it, it feels like a very 1960s book. So a lot of the language felt pretty dated to me. Um, the games that the kids are playing, all of that stuff felt a little bit dated, but it was actually kind of lovely because like they're on the, the kids are on the bus playing cards and talking with each other. They're not all on their cell phones. Right. Yeah. Um, but Jamie is cheating at cards and gambling, which I love. (laughs) I love that he's like, like a tightwad and straight laced and you think, but he's also like got this long running scam going. (laughs) Yeah. I think he and Claudia make a nice contrast for each other. They, they have to be in conflict a little bit for the book to be interesting. Um, yeah, like I liked them. They aren't super memorable characters to me. Again, to like really go back to what we said right at the start of this episode, it's the images of this book, not the specific characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even know. I mean, the the book is titled after Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. She's the narrator. I don't know. She's a little bit more intriguing to me as a character reading as an adult. And I'm like, I want a whole novel backstory on her. Totally. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. What else did you think about Claudia and Jamie? Yeah, I I, I liked I liked them. I, I thought that they had, were nicely drawn in terms of specific details that you could latch onto and remember about them that were both um, not superficial, but, um, a little bit surface level, but that you could read into. Like, I, I, I think that, you know, all of the little things with Claudia about like how she hates the moment when she's getting dressed that she's like totally naked and cold real quick, like those sorts of things, they feel more like, like images that stand out to me than like, oh, I really am connecting with Claudia as a character. It's hard to describe what that exact difference is because I think as a kid, Claudia did make me feel seen in certain ways. But she's not like an Anne where I think about her as a fully formed person either. Um, But I actually think that's like a really interesting, delicate balance to form to create this very tight little story where the characters feel very, very much alive on the page while you're reading, but it's all contained. Um, I think that that's smart. I do, I do wonder about the choice of Mrs. B as the narrator. As an adult, I really like that. And as a kid, I don't remember it. So Me neither. Yeah. I could have gone totally over my head and I never even realized it. Yeah. And not only like is she the narrator, but she's writing this letter, this account to her lawyer. And she like often makes these asides to him about like how he never goes to the museum and he only cares about his grandkids and all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I just, what do you, why do you think she chose to do that? Well, I'm wondering if that's part of what makes this story feel so contained, mm. like you were saying, because there is that, like the setup of, this is part of my last will and testament. Um, and it's a a letter that she's writing. And so there is a very clear beginning and end, and it's all contained in this letter. And I think Claudia and Jamie maybe feel less like we don't get as close to them because we're reaching them through her. 
Um, and she is retelling a story that they told her that she put on a tape recorder. <laughs> so yep. um, I think I think it feels contained in that way. Um, I don't know if there's other than just like it's a it's a fun part of the mystery. It makes the reveal at the end kind of fun. Um, from what I remember of some of Yale Konigsberg's other works. I think that kind of like clever structure is kind of a hallmark. I don't know. I I liked the asides though. Mm-hmm. Like uh, on page 66, they um, go and find a group to eat with. Um, and oh, yeah. it says they dined with the group, staying always at the rear of the line, always slightly apart. Both Jamie and Claudia had acquired a talent for being near, but never part of a group. Some people, Saxonberg, never learn to do that all their lives, and some learn it all too well. And I was like, this is very deep. I feel like I have to stop and think about this yep. for a while. Um, but that's the kind of thing that would totally go over my head as a kid because I just wanted to know what they were going to do next in the museum. But as an adult, I'm like, who? They acquired a talent for being near but never part of a group. Some people never learn to do that. Some learn to do it all too well. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, especially coming from a, a woman that you know to be like older and wiser. So older I liked those asides. And maybe lonely, right? I mean. Definitely lonely. I think there's a lot hinted about that at the end of the book that also I didn't remember when I read this as a kid. Okay. Well, let's talk about the end because. Yeah, it is so, I mean, <laughs> I want to say it's so memorable, but it was not memorable to me as a no. kid. No. But um, so if you want to avoid spoilers, skip ahead, look at our show notes for a pairings timestamp. But we think we think it's okay if you just want to hear the spoiler. <laughs> so, yeah. So they get to Mrs. B's house and she basically tells them that she'll kind of, she, she'll trade secrets with them basically like if they can can figure out her system and if they tell her their story then she will divulge the secret to them and we learn that the statue is indeed an authentic Michelangelo and that she wanted the museum to have it without um but but it, for it to kind of be her secret and without like them having to spend a fortune um, but the real twist <laughs> is that her lawyer is the kid's grandfather. Yeah. And just in this, like, you know, only in books, fortuitous little the small world. Yep, small world thing. And, you know, when you look back, you realize not the whole time, but it's interesting how she's always talking about his grandkids as she addresses him throughout. Yeah. And you realize that, oh, the first thing she did when the kids showed up was call her lawyer. Like, not because she was like, what is, <laughs> what's the legality yeah. of having these runaways in my house? But because he's been worried sick about them. Yeah. Fun little discovery at the end. I think the part that stood out to me that I totally didn't remember is that she, she is lonely, but she talks about how she isn't a mother or grandmother mm -hmm. and that that's like the only thing that she never experienced. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that the kids notice that she's kind of sad about that. And then it, you know, it makes a little more sense that she like was so eager to welcome these kids and (laughs) include them as part of her will, right? Because who else is she going to leave all of her things to in this big, big, beautiful house, which I also loved reading about. Oh yeah. Her house. And I loved when Claudia is in the bathroom washing up. She's like, I'm going to take a bath in this bathtub because when am I going to get the chance again? (laughs) Yeah. The details of this book are just so great. Yeah. Um, But on their way home, um, Claudia is quiet for a little while. And then she asks, do you think she meant that stuff about motherhood? And Jamie shrugs and says, let's visit her every time we save enough money. We won't tell anyone. We won't stay overnight. We'll just tell mom and dad that we're going bowling or something. And we'll take a train trip up instead. We'll adopt her, the girl suggested. We'll become her kids, sort of. Um, She's too old to be a mother. She said so herself. Besides, we already have one. She'll become our grandmother then, since ours are deceased. And that will be our secret that we won't even share with her. She'll be the only woman in the world to become a grandmother with never becoming a mother first. Um, I don't know. That was really sweet, I thought. And she kind of makes a little winking joke to their grandpa, <laughs> the lawyer, which there's kind of like a little flirtation in here. Mm-hmm. And you learn oh, their grandmothers aren't around. So that flirtation is like, Legit, right? Um, <laughs> since they intend to make me their grandmother, you are already their grandfather. That makes us, oh, well, I won't even think about that. Um, you're not that good a poker player. Um, <laughs> there's like this little flirtation with them and there's just this uh, little element of, um, I don't know, that there, there's almost this possibility that we don't know as the book ends that maybe they kept in touch with her. Yeah. For many years. That door is still open. And I really liked that. And I, I think that having that little reveal where she's already connected to their grandfather allows for that possibility even more. It's like, you know, I think without that, it would you would think, okay, well, how how long is it going to take them to save money to go on the train? And how are the parents ever going to let them out of their sight again to go? Oh my goodness, <laughs> you know? right? Um well it's the 60s. So yeah, yeah. So maybe. <laughs> So, but with that connection, it just feels, yes, like a more viable possibility that, that they will get to adopt her. And I really love that, that language. And it's kind of nice, especially coming, um, out of reading Anne of Green Gables, that this sort of found family narrative is really, really nice. And I think that I, I, I always enjoy seeing books for kids where, and, you know, we just see the very beginning of this in this one, but where kids have adults in their lives who aren't their parents, who are very trustworthy and very um, formative to that, to their lives, because I, I think that's so important. Um, so I really, I really like that piece. I also really like that she put the account of this whole story in her will, because you know that then when Jamie and Claudia learn that she's deceased. They kind of get this um, notification. Um, They get a letter or they're on their way to, you know, they go to the will reading, whatever, however it goes down, that they get this account of their adventure that they might not remember as Mm. well because they they were, you know, nine and 12 when they went and did this. And so it's almost like she's leaving this account. It's not really for anyone except for the kids 
Because why take all of this time just for their grandfather? I don't think it's actually meant for him mm-hmm. as much as it's her letting this story um, out for Jamie and Claudia to remember. Because otherwise, yeah, the, the details will be fuzzy to them as they get older. As running away. This and, book is fuzzy to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and Claudia might not remember the significance of Angel if she didn't have this story. I mean, she might. It depends how much of an impact the statue really, really made on her. Um, but maybe it would be a little fuzzy to be like, oh yeah, I remember this, but why did she give it to me again? Or like, where am I supposed to put this? Or what am I supposed to do with this? I think there's there's something lovely about her and like getting the whole story on paper for them. Well, I think we kind of answered this book already when we talked about what what this what about this book might appeal to kids, but is there anything else you want to add to our our standard question of what this book says about childhood? Hmm. We said, you know, Claudia learns that she has to keep a secret or that she need something just for herself. Um, and that that's why she really wanted to run away, not because of the injustice, but because she needed something that was just hers. We talked a little bit about like adults wanting to be, or kids wanting to be adults it, until you become both. an adult yeah. and then you just want to be a kid again. <laughs> um, I think that that's about it for childhood. It's a very, I think the other thing that I, I learned from reading it was just that, you know, kids books don't have to have like really fast paced plots or like complex mysteries in order for them to have such a lasting impact. I, I really think there is just something about really good writing Mm -hmm. that makes the scenario come alive for kids. And, um, yeah, just, I don't know. I'm, I'm pondering that a little bit more. Um, it felt like a much more like quiet, simple story to me reading it than what I maybe remembered. Um, and I, I think that that's great for kids to read. I I agree. I think that's really well said. And the only thing I'll add, and this is, I think is connected to the the writing as well is kids books don't necessarily need like a, a moral or a lesson. I don't think all of the books we've read have had morals and lessons, but this one really felt like that the end really could have been about why they shouldn't have run away from home or how important, you know, it is to be with your family, et cetera. And it, and they learned things along the way, but they weren't the typical lessons you would expect from a running away from home story. And I, I liked, I liked that. I wonder if the author ever got any flack for like writing a book about kids running away. About the glamour of running away. About like, that, like made every kid around want to run yeah. away. <laughs> you're going to make kids run away from home. You're giving them great doing? strategies and right. ideas. Yeah. <laughs> We're banning this book because now kids know how to handle their money when they run away from home. Exactly. <laughs> All oh, right, man. Chelsea. Okay, Sarah. <laughs> Let's talk pairings. How many did you bring today? We've been saying we've been we're going to bring two. I have two definite pairings and then I have one uh that I haven't read but sounds kind of fun. So Same. we'll see. Great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. My first one is Portrait of an Unknown Lady by Maria Gainza, which I just recently read. It is a um book in translation translated from the Spanish 
It takes place in Buenos Aires and also has kind of a, um, I think it takes place in the 80s, but there is a mystery surrounding the 1960s art world that is prominent in this story. And we have an unnamed narrator who is an art critic. And when her mentor, who was um, an art authenticator, passes away, she kind of in an attempt to learn more about her mentor's life, goes down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out who this mysterious woman art forger from the 1960s might have been. And there is a, of course, there's a mystery element, but this is not a mystery. And if you go in thinking it's going to be a mystery and everything's going to be solved, you will be disappointed. (laughs) But it really is about art and appreciating art. And it's very much about authenticity and what that means. And like the same kind of question with this statue in this kid's book. It's like, is it valuable because it's beautiful and it resonates with someone? Or is it valuable because of who made it and the fact that it's worth a certain amount of money? And that question is really all throughout Portrait of an Unknown Lady. Um, But she also questions the authenticity of memory, thinking about like, it's every time we remember something, it's a little bit different. Is that in and of itself a forgery? Um, And so this theme of forgery just runs throughout in a really fascinating way. So this is a book, it's not plot driven, it's not character driven, it is theme driven. This is a book you pick up like if you really want to read something inventive about art, authenticity, and forgery. I really liked it. It's also short. Um, yeah, that's Portrait of an Unknown Lady by Maria Gainza. Who I like the art theme. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a fun one. Okay. I have a YA book to recommend. It is Now That I've Found You by Christina Forrest. And this this has some really fun connections to uh Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. So this is a YA novel. I would say, I think that the character is like 17, just like a little older way, but it, I feel like it doesn't read like one of those older YA novels. Um, so it's, oh, she's 18. Um, Effie Jones is 18 and she is Hollywood's big starlet of the moment. But then a friend uh, betrays her and like posts this video and says some bad things about her. And then she basically gets like blacklisted in Hollywood. And to Evie, it's like just the most devastating thing in the world because A, she was betrayed by a friend and B, her career is on the line. And this is all she's ever wanted to do is be an actress. Her super famous grandma... um, Gigi, aka Evelyn Conway, Evie's namesake. Um, she was a huge movie star, but she's been a recluse for the last 20 years. And so for Evie to kind of make her way back into the spotlight, there is this plan that she's going to present her grandma with an honorary award at an awards show. But just a few days before the award show, Gigi, her grandma, disappears. So Evie is in New York City um, from L.A. She's in New York City to present this award to her grandma. 
Grandma's nowhere to be found and she needs to find her. So she runs all around New York City with Milo, who is a cute musician. I think that he lives in the grandma's building. I don't remember exactly what the connection was, but he's the last one to have seen grandma before she disappeared. And grandma kind of left some clues behind. And so um, it's it's really fun. It's a really fun adventure. It's got that great New York City setting. And um, I think that just like the uh, Gigi, who's recluse, um, who's a recluse and has been stashed away for years and has this artistic bent, sounds very Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler to me. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a fun, fun book um, and kind of has a few of the eccentric artistic vibes of this one. So that is Now That I've Found You by Christina Forrest. Oh, that sounds super fun. All right. I'm I'm going to double up on this pairing because I had Go put in here Possession by A.S. Byatt, which mm. is one of my favorite books of all time and which I did pair with persuasion because it is a book about longing and it very much is a romantic book but it is also a an art mystery a literary mystery um about two scholars who unearth this secret relationship between two romantic poets um capital R romantic poets Um, and yeah, I mean, I think you can see why that would make good pairing. (laughs) You have this like team element in a different capacity, uh, but also, um, this, this mystery that these, that they have to get to, to the bottom of, and this like intense, uh, special connection they feel with the poets they are researching. But I also will add along the same lines, the weight of ink by Rachel Kaddish, um, which is another fantastic literary mystery. It takes place, um, has two timelines, uh, 1660s London and uh, 21st century London, where a very curmudgeon scholar of Jewish history named Helen goes to this, this house where this, you know, this wealthy young couple has bought this manor house kind of thing. And they open like a little cupboard under the stairway and they find just these these tons and tons of documents that turn out to be Jewish documents from the 1660s um, as part of this kind of like, you know, not secret at the time, but became secret Jewish community um, in uh, 17th century London. And as they're researching, they find out that they are trying to identify the um, identity of the scribe who was working with the rabbis. And they make a wild discovery that, um, and I'm saying they, because Helen has to take under her wing this like pretentious uh, young grad student named Aaron, <laughs> who she really can't stand, but they end up becoming a great team. Um, and it's one of those where the, the mystery is both like, who is the scribe? What happened? Why are all these documents hidden? And they're like trying to keep hidden how valuable this might be from the owners of the house while still trying to make their academic discovery have weight. And so 
it's it's really fun. It's long, but it is um it's a a page turner. And it's good for like Kate Morton fans, I'd say, because of that back and forth timeline. But I think the writing is better and the mystery is more intriguing. So that is the weight of ink. I'm really happy with this next pairing, Sarah. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) This is a book that you and I both enjoyed. It is Now Is Not the Time to Panic by Kevin Wilson. Oh, this is such a fun pairing and I never would have thought of this. Right? I wouldn't have thought of it except that I was totally scrolling through like my uh, story graph reads. So um, this one jumped out and I am so glad it did. I really liked this book. I think it came out last summer, so it still feels, you know, like new enough that it would be a great one to pick up this summer, especially if you want a book that is set over summer. So this is about two teenagers who are kind of misfits. Like they, they don't really have a great sense of like who they are in the world. And over summer, we have 16-year-old Frankie Budge. She wants to be a writer. Um, She's kind of a loner, and she is just trying to make it through summer in middle of nowhere, Tennessee. Um, And then she meets Zeke, and he is really good at art. Um, He moved into his grandmother's house, and he's lonely too. And so they get together And there's like a little bit of teen love where they're like, maybe we should like each other. They're kind of like experimenting with those emotions. Um, But mostly they make this creative team and they make this poster with Zeke's art and Frankie's words. And this poster says, the edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us. And then they decide like, it's not enough for us to have made this. We need people to see it. So they Xerox the posters and they put them up all around town. Well, rumors start about these posters. Some people are like, this is from a cult or this is from, I don't know, someone and things happen around town. And they just, Frankie's like really invested in this as, as art. Zeke starts to pull away. Um, and I, I just really think thematically partly with the art and like the importance of art in young people's lives, but also with that search for identity and secrets this makes such a good pairing for from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler. So I love this. Yeah. I love this book, but I love this pairing. And then like later, it turns out that a journalist calls Francie and wants to like bring up this art again. And so um, it's a coming of age story, much like our our book today, but it's it's also um I don't know. I like that there's like more of a present day connection and sort of like the secret of the art that is to be revealed. And yeah, I really liked this book. I I think it's a great kind of like adult point A, point B from uh, Mrs. B to this one. So that is Now Is Not the Time to Panic by Kevin Wilson. Perfect. All right. Well, I'll just throw out one more title. I have not read this, but I mean, I've heard about it and I could not not suggest it. If you read Mrs. Basil, Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler as a kid and you were like, gosh, I wish that I could wander around the Met by myself, then you probably need to read this book called All the Beauty in the World 
The Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me by Patrick Bringley. It came out in February of this year, and it is the memoir of a Met guard. And he was, yeah, doesn't this sound so good? Mm -hmm. He was a staff writer for The New Yorker. And after some sort of family tragedies and hardships, he was like, he needed a job that he just, he, he didn't have to to, you know, work in the same way that a New Yorker writer would have to work. He didn't have to hustle in that way. Like he wanted a job where he went, it was calm, and he left it behind. Um, And so he was hired as a security guard at the Met. And he takes us kind of behind the scenes here. um, And he tells you what it is like to be alone amongst all of these Mm. treasures. Um, This is the publisher's description. Bringley enters the museum as a ghost, silent and almost invisible, and but soon finds his voice and his tribe, the artworks and their creators, and the lively subculture of museum guards, a gorgeous mosaic of artists, musicians, blue-collar stalwarts, immigrants, cut-ups, and dreamers. As his bonds with his art colleagues and the art grow, he comes to understand how fortunate he is to be walled off in this little world and how much it resembles the best aspects of the larger world to which he gradually, gratefully returns. That's lovely. I know. It sounds fantastic. And I feel like I might pick this up on audio soon after being back with uh, Mm -hmm. Claudia and James in the Met. It just seems like such a great pairing that I kind of want to Um, read them in a one-two punch. So that's called All the Beauty in the World by Patrick Bringley. This is Metropolitan Stories by Christine Colson. The cover is stunning. Um, And it sounds like a really nice pairing for All the Beauty in the World. So this is a writer who worked at the Met for more than 25 years. And then this is a novel, but it's a novel told in vignettes, which that's one of my favorite structures. Um, and so it's about, um, these characters, um, it takes place in the hallways and offices and conservation studios and cafeteria, um, the staff, some ghosts, uh, and yeah, it's about, it's about art (laughs) and people and people looking at art. So, um, this one was published in 2019 and um, it has some some good reviews. So I think if you're in that sort of like mode of just wanting to stay in the museum, Metropolitan Stories by Christine Coulson is another good one to check out. All right, Sarah, we are going to wrap up there, but there's a lot more going on. We're not done with classic children's literature quite yet this spring. Next month, for the month of May, we're going to be talking about children's literature in translation with with some really fun classics that I'm super excited to talk about. And we will have more fun content on our Patreon Classics Club bonus feed, including our plans for summer, some fun announcements. If you want to read with us and become more critical, thorough readers of both classic and contemporary literature, we would love, love, love to have you at patreon.com slash novel pairings. If you just want to support the podcast because you love listening to it, we would also love to have you um, 
It is a great way to keep this podcast running um, and give Sarah and me the ability to set aside time for recording the show. So patreon.com slash novel pairings. We would love to have you there. We would also love to have you on our Substack list, especially when we're sending out calendars and announcements and fun links for more behind the scenes stuff um, with our episodes. So that is at novelpairings.substack.com. And then of course, Instagram is a great way to get a hold of us as well. We are at novel pairings pod on Instagram. Thank you so much for sharing the podcast with your fellow listeners. One of the best things that you can do to support the show for free is send our show to a friend. Or if you're talking about podcasts with your friends, mention novel pairings because word of mouth is still the very best way to spread the word about novel pairings. And yeah, we would love to reach some more listeners. So thank you so much to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. And next time we're going to be back to discuss Ink Heart by Cornelia Funk, which is one of my favorite books. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Thank you.